Hello, everyone. Welcome to our event. Uh, this is uh, Finding Peace in Somalia, the Galkayo Local Agreement. My name is uh, Dr. Matthew Benson, and I'm the Research Director for South Sudan within the Conflict Research Program at the LSE, and I'll be chairing today. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the CRP, we work in five countries, which are Iraq, Syria, DRC, South Sudan, and Somalia, and we are funded by the FCDO, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which was formerly DFID. Um, we have a really great topic on the table today, which illuminates the Golkayo Peace Agreement in Somalia. One of the thematic areas within the CRP across the different countries is so-called local agreements. A policy brief on this agreement is available on our website and an article is in its final stage, stages. Um, the format for today's event will be the main presentation, which will be about 15 to 20 minutes, uh, followed by a short response by each of our three panelists. Then we'll turn to a question and answer where you, the audience, can pose questions through the chat function. The event is being recorded today, so it'll also be available later on. And uh, if I can now introduce our panelists in the order in which they're speaking, we have Dr. Nisar Majid, who is the research director for the CRP in Somalia. He's worked in and on Somalia-related issues for over 20 years in varying research capacities and is the co-author of the book Famine in Somalia, 2011 to 12, Competing Imperatives, Collective Failures. We're also delighted to have Ms. Ilham Gassar with us. She is a CEO of Kiggs Consulting. She's currently a Senior Stabilization and Conflict Advisor to the International Organization for Migration, IOM. Prior to this, she served with the UN Assistance Mission to Somalia, UNISOM, and as a Political Advisor to the Special Representative of the Secretary General for Somalia, the SRSG. Ilham was also the chief negotiator of the Galkayo Peace Agreement and chief facilitator for the Alha Sunawa Jama and Gamaduk State Power Sharing Agreement. And next we have Khalif Abdurrahman, who is a senior field researcher on the CRP Somalia. Khalif and Nisar comprise the core team of the Somalia program. And Khalif has conducted research across the Somalia regions in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia over the last seven years, including for Tufts University, the Rift Valley Institute, RBI, and the Overseas Development Institute, ODI. He's also a fellow of, of RBI. And finally, we have RBI's very own Mark Bradbury, who is the executive director of the Rift Valley Institute. Um, he's a social analyst with 20 years experience in international development and humanitarian aid. He has worked in and written about Somalia, Somaliland, Sudan, South Sudan, Sierra Leone, Kenya, Uganda, and Kosovo as a development worker and researcher. He's author of the book, Becoming Somaliland, as well as Search for Peace, a synthesis report of a peace mapping study on Somalia by Interpeace, and whose peace it is, is it anyway, which connects Somalia and international peacemaking for conciliation resources. So welcome to everyone. And uh, Nisar, it's over to you. Great. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, so I'm going to st uh, start by presenting the, the story of the Gakao Local Agreement, which was signed in December 2017. The presentation and the policy brief uh, that Matt has mentioned are on our website and are based on a much longer paper that we're currently finalising. And I should say from the outset that this is a joint piece of work. Marika Theros, also from the LSE, and myself have been leading the analysis and writing. Khalif, who's with us, has been intimately involved. And we're grateful to have Ilham here today, who has been the source of many insights on the whole process, as so she was a participant in it, and we've where we've added to her experience and insights with a range of further interviews. So with a, a couple of caveats to begin with, our angle in this study and the policy brief is particularly around external mediation. So we don't claim to have fully captured all of the dynamics around the building of this agreement as it took place over several years and had many different elements. 
And while we're focusing on external mediation, we're also we're not claiming or suggesting that the roles of Interpeace or the SRSG's office and Ilham myself as two of the main external actors with the main reason or factor in, in the success of the agreement. There were many factors, as I've said. However, we do argue that the role of external actors was extremely influential in how the agreement process developed. And this is important to stress in Somalia as in, as in many other places, as external actors are often as much a part of the problem as a part of the solution. And in Somalia in particular, there's a long history of international actors and resources being incorporated into the country's political economy in, in detrimental ways. I should also say that within the CRP, we don't see Somalia as being on a trajectory towards becoming a normal institu institutional state. Rather, we utilise Alex Duval's political marketplace framework, where, in short, we see short-term transactional relations subordinating the building of institutions and norms. There are a number of thematic papers available on our website to this effect, and we're consolidating these into an overall analysis of Somalia at the moment. And the reason I say that is because the deeper reconciliation processes, the rebuilding of social relations, in fact, that have been taking place in and around Garkayo, including through the mediation process, do challenge the expediency and transactional relations of the political marketplace and the associated political deals and bargains that we see elsewhere as part of the federal system and its politics. And the issue for us is that these, this agreement-making process is the exception rather than the rule of current politics, politics in Somalia. So that said, just turning briefly to the subject of peacebuilding more generally, there's recognised to be a local turn in peace building currently, which emphasises the need to engage with local actors, structures and dynamics, and which recognises the changes in the global landscape of conflict and peacemaking over the last 20 to 30 years. Today's armed conflicts are characterised by their complexity, by the proliferation and fragmentation of actors, the mixture of political and criminal violence, intensified geopolitical and regional involvement, and the presence of ideological and identity-based conflict. So while a focus on the local is certainly welcome, it's crucial to understand how local and other levels interact and intersect. And this is certainly the case in, in many Somali conflicts and political processes. And understanding these layers and how to interact is increasingly urgent for political and diplomatic interventions globally. So I'm just going to uh, turn now to Somalia itself and Galkayo, and I'm going to just very quickly put up a map. So this is a map of Somalia. You can see the different federal member states. And on the right-hand side, the northeastern side, you can see Galgadud and Mudug regions, which together make up Galmadug. And to the north, uh, the regions of Bari and Nugal and the northern half of Mudug, and then a line in between. That's the, that's the area that we're particularly looking at, the border between uh, Puntland and Galmudug. I'm going to come out of that now. If we can just remove that map, please. Okay, so for those of um, so 
Following the collapse of the state in 1990-91 and the Civil War, Galkayo Town marks a border area where a 1993 peace accord, known as the Mudug Accord, was in fact struck and which then divided the town for the following two decades and really up to now to a, to a certain extent. This accord was agreed between, the two, between two of the main protagonists that fought against and brought down the Somalia government of Siad Barre, who were Abdullah Yusuf and General Idid. And this border area that you've seen in the map um, has many layers and is one of the most important in the Somali imagination. It divides two of the main clan families, the Darod and the Hawiye, as well as their respective local lineages and families. And it's been a long-standing border between Puntland, which was inaugurated as an autonomous region in 1998, and a much more fragmented central and southern Somalia, and which remains to a certain extent the same today. The difference is very significant on either side of this border, as Puntland underwent its own reconciliation process and has functioned as a self-governing region since the late 1990s, since 1998. And this relative stability has in turn attract, attracted significant diaspora investments and an aid presence and resources. North Galkaya, which is the Puntland part of the town, has benefited from these factors, whereas South Galkaya has been much more turbulent as part of its uh, incorporation into southern and central Somalia. So these different political and developmental trajectories on either side of the border have created various imbalances, including a sense of unfairness around access to aid. All, aid, all or most aid agencies are located in the north of the town, for example, as well as antagonistic language, you might call it uh, superiority and inferiority complexes, and a lack of social interaction across the border. And the 90, so the 1993 Accord worked reasonably well, reasonably effectively as a truce, mitigating uh, the outbreak of serious conflict, but it didn't involve, crucially, the rebuilding of social re relations, which one might argue got worse over time. So that's a bit of background. Uh, in 2012, then, um, Somalia attained international recognition as a federal state, and this required the creation of new regions or member states, as they're called. And it's this process that strained the 1993 Accord, but that ultimately led to a deeper peace process. So while Puntland was already formed as an autonomous region and willingly incorporated into the new federal arrangement, the new member state uh, of Galmudug was created from two or from one and a half regions, actually from Galgadud region and the southern half of Mudug region. And this created new tensions. Galmudug did not follow the constitutional requirement to, to be made up of at least two regions. It was made up of one and a half regions. Uh, but it also gave Galmudug an equal status to Puntland for the first time. And Puntland was particularly concerned by the close relations between Galmudug's Gal first president and Somalia's president at the time, um, the national president at the time. So a potential factor that could work against Puntland's interests in the, in the following federal elections. So there were various tensions around. And these tensions at the elite levels in the capitals of Puntland and Galmudug, the state capitals, and in Mogadishu, were manifest in Galkayo town and were said to be simmering, driven more by outside factors uh, around the state building process, but with a long history of underlying grievances giving easy traction to agitators in the town. 
And so this resulted eventually in November 2015 in a major outbreak of conflict and then a ceasefire. Uh, and then again in another major outbreak of conflict in October 2016. And the second outbreak of conflict in October 2016 marked the point at which a new concerted effort amongst different actors, including international actors, took place to support a reconciliation process. And that's the subject of this engagement that we're interested in and, and followed. So there was a lot of attention, of course, at this time internationally around the, support, the international support for a new Somalia government, as well as uh, within the wider Somali public, who um, were hopeful that this signified a new phase in Somalia's political development. So I'll turn to uh, a number of points now that I'd like to highlight that we find significant when looking at uh, this Pro, the, the local peace process from a kind of international mediation perspective. And here we're drawing on the role of the of two of the main mediators, which are the, the UNSRSG's office, which is one of them, Ilham being the key person there, as well as Interpeace, which has a long history of research and engagement in Somalia. So to just to discuss some of these points, one of them was the ability to act at different levels. So while the Galkayo agreement making process largely took place within Galkayo town itself, the mediators were sensitive to the different levels where influence was important. And one of the examples we highlight was the importance of getting an agreement between the heads of the respective states of Puntland and Galmuduk. This would not automatically lead to the necessary follow-up on the ground by the states themselves, but gave people like Ilham, gave the mediators the leverage to pursue the process on the ground. And more generally, working at the local level in Galkayo meant linking with the state capitals and the national capitals, as well as with international actors. And the point being that acting locally meant being aware and able to act at other levels too. A second point, uh, particularly interesting, is concerns the credibility and identity of international actors in this in this case. So when we say international, for example, there was a very strong Somali identity within the international actors. And Ilham's role is particularly fascinating in this regard, and we'll hear from her more soon on this. Ilham clearly had a major influence as part of wider local networks supporting the, the peace process. Khalif was in Galkayo a few weeks ago, in fact, with Ilham on another assignment, and he was quite struck by the mark that she had left amongst different people that they met. And Ilham had different hats as a Somali from one side of the border and from one side of the, the, the border by her family identity, as a woman, as a member of the diaspora and as a UN employee. And actually with little ex previous experience of this type of mediation. So she had to prove and demonstrate her understanding of the local context and her commitment to the peace efforts. And she clearly did this with great skill and sensitivity, but interestingly, leveraging these different identities that I've just mentioned and their associated resources, whether financial or other, uh, in order to play a critical role in the process. The organisation Interpeace is also important to mention, as they were a significant player locally and brought individuals, one actually a Somali-speaking Swede and another a well-respected elder that had worked for them for many years and both long-term employees of uh, Interpeace or of its local partners. And they've worked in Somalia for many years and have documented um, and been part of different peace processes. So 
International engagement is often problematic. Personal and institutional agendas are often too prominent and an understanding of an impartiality to the local environment not sufficient. And it can crowd out space for local actors and introduce financial and other incentives that are that disrupt the process, that are counter to a smooth process. In this case, this is one of our points. The SRSG's office and Interpeace brought an order, a capability, a knowledge and a commitment, but also stayed in the background as facilitators rather than uh, to try and capture the limelight. Another point, uh, reframing the interests of spoilers. The term spoiler is often used in, in, in peace processes, directed at those with interest at odd at odds with the, pre the peace process. There were interesting examples provided in doing this research where actual or potential spoilers were given a different way to think about how they could benefit from engaging more constructively in this process. One example was that of a military leader, a military commander who was unwilling to meet his opposite number at a foreign neutral military base. However, he was persuaded that doing so would give him the opportunity to form relations with the foreign forces there, and which would mean he could provide accurate information where he was upset, amongst other things, by an attack on members of his own community who had been targeted using inaccurate information and where a large group of people were killed. And he took up that opportunity once it was framed to him differently. Um, Another point that we wanted to highlight was the, 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 the inclusive network building and the strengthening of local mechanisms. So this area concern was based on the fact that mediation and facilitation process built on existing structures. After the initial um, outbreak of conflict in 2015, there was the creation of a joint ceasefire committee. And this committee was expanded through this new engagement to include a much wider set of local actors. Ilham again played an important role in engaging with prominent women and youth groups, thereby also not limiting the process to men and elders alone, whose domain this type of process can remain within. And in addition, other local clans, not from the two major groups, but nonetheless significant to the peace process and part of the local residents of Galkaya town were brought into the process. So in summary, um, the 2017 Galkaya agreement is very important for both Somali society and for state building processes, as well as for international engagement in Somalia and elsewhere. It successfully combined Somali and international actors and resources. And as such, we see it as an, we see it as an important example of an appropriate external intervention. It required sensitivity to both the national and local contexts and included a strong Somali identity within the international actors. And this engagement, as embodied by a number of the key mediators working for international agencies, represented what we've called an activist approach to peace building, which was arguably sufficiently powerful to counter underlying grievances and the transactional elite driven politics that dominate Somalia's political dynamics and that's an important point that we want to stress that this activist approach and finally the agreement also represents the re-establishment of social relations across what's a really significant border um, 
boundary in Somalia. And it's a process that's still on, ongoing. It remains unfinished and it remains fragile, but things have moved on markedly since uh, December 2017. And this social rebuilding process is qualitatively different than that that existed for many years, for two or more decades from 1993 under the Mudug Accord uh, that characterized the pre-existing boundary and the truce that I referred to at the beginning of this talk. So on that note, I shall um, uh, finish there and hand on to others. Matt, thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, now we have um, Ilham Gasser. Hi, um, good afternoon, everybody. Hello, good afternoon. So basically, um, I think Nisar covered the history of Muduk and Galkayo and gave an overview of what the peace building was like. I just wanted to highlight um, that before, just want to give you a brief background on how, how I came about. So when I returned to Somalia in 2016 and joined the SRSG's office, Galkayo wasn't it wasn't the first time I've heard of Galkaya. Galkaya has always been um, in the houses and households and the discussions among many, many Somali households. It's often a place where it's referred to for being the funniest city in town, all the jokes and all, all the stories, all the funny stories that you can relate to um, 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 are made of Galkaya and come from Galkaya. They're known to be most aggressive individuals, um, great storytellers and equally are, are, are great leaders. So Galkayo is the production of what they call strong men. It's, a, it's the city that's known to produce really strong leaders. So before I go into it, for me, um, coming back to Somalia and coming joining the SR, um, UN Political Affairs Office at the midst of an election season, at the midst of everything was kind of happening um, and there's different parcels moving and, and intersecting. Um, the conflict was seen, for me, it was like, we're in 2016, there shouldn't be a mini-civil war in, in Somalia. How can this be happening? We were in the midst of, of a drought. Um, many things were happening. So when the ceasefire agreement happened, I was part of a greater team. Um, and the UN has a, a, a lot of different um, units that have been supporting the process, that have been part of the process. And I was fortunate enough to be in the political office as one of the leads that were going into Galkai and being part of that great team. So my, my first day of get, um, landing in Galkai was quite significant. Before I left, I asked all the questions um, and seek support from many, many uh, uh, colleagues. And I said, look, um, do you think we can get a peace agreement or, or, or a, a ceasefire to last in Galkaria? And the reaction was always, almost everyone laughed and said, Galkaria is Galkaria, you know, it's not gonna change. There's always been a, a place of conflict. Those people know nothing more than to kill themselves. So I don't think anything will come, from, um, will come out of it. So um, my first day in Galkaya was quite, I, I went there with, with, with the idea of thinking, what did I get myself into? Am I, what is happening? I've always heard of the divided uh, border or, or the tree that resembles the, the borderline. So there's like, um, there's a border tree that one talks about. So you go there, you get exchange. However, for me, it was a bit more surreal. I went to a city where everybody was so kind and, and they interacted really well. They were very welcoming. But at the same time, there was a mental blockade. I went to the tree as an exchange to, to see what was where was the border. 
there was no border. So for me, I pictured an actual physical wall or something of a barrier. Nothing existed. So I realized there is no border. There's mental blockade or, or, um, in people's mindsets. The hatred was so much of what was said rather than what was happening. And I came to realize it was more to do with the political elites rather than the local people. But it, because of the identity that everybody had, because this notion of the division between how we end up, or because of the divide that existed for so long, there's been no social contract and no social exchanges beyond the fact that you, you see everybody from Galkai, they're either cousins or uncles, aunts and aunties, but they, yet they're so separate, but you're part of the same greater family. So one of the key, key things for me, I think what gave me the breakthrough was the fact that I came without biases. You know, I came um, to try and prove a point that um, I can go to Galkai, you know, that things can change. It doesn't always have to be the negative, a stigma. So for me, it was my own conviction of trying to find um, the change of rebranding of Galkai. Can Galkai be rebranded to the city of peace rather than the city of conflict? So the process took a very long time to kind of process, but I think um, what was important to the peacemaking agreement is to understand the people that as international partners, international donors or international actors, we need to understand that every um, local conflict it is very local and nothing can be compared. And nothing um, that we kind of figure, um, assume will happen will not happen. It's all about personalities. And for me, the main focus I, I played focus on was to develop relationship with the people, to understand their own biases and where they're coming from. What is the standoff? Or what, it tri what triggers um, the mayor, mayor from the north compared to the mayor from the south? What is the personal connection that can be developed in order to get him to understand that there is a... Um, there's more benefits to peace than conflict. So for me, it was I spent a great amount of time invested in the people of Galkaya rather than the process. I think that we are so entwined with getting things done and following uh, certain sets of rules and ideas that are not often locally uh, locally processed ideas that local norms. So saying that, I think um, peacemaking. It's quite different. Um, I was well over my head thinking that this could, you know, I could be part of a, a process that succeeds. I remember their initial um, ceasefire committee was a uh, mandate was three months, you know, like let's go in there for three months and see if this ceasefire can hold. I saw an opportunity there where people, there is an opportunity to go beyond the three months, you know, there is a to push and to leverage a bit more and to hold individuals accountable and to get more people involved because the people were not the issue, it was the political level that was the issue. So, and I, and I, I one thing that it was important to highlight is to be able to navigate um, within the norms that you operate, to be able to navigate within the institutions that you work, um, um, are part of. So UNSOM is, 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 is great, it has many levels and, and many um, different organs that we can tap into for support. However, our own bureaucracy, sometimes it cripples uh, the, um, our efforts. But um, another thing that was really, really important for me was to understand how deep the hatred was or how deep the conflict was. Like, where do we, where is the bottom line of, of, of getting things done? And it, it was a bit uh, naive for me to think that, oh, this is easy, it's simple. 
but it was I think it was and we overthink certain things and I think once people meet especially within the Somali culture we are easy to hate each other from afar but once you get together and you you connect people often develop a personal relationship that is stronger than their clan identity or, or political alliances it's often an if, if the opportunity can arise then that's how we go forward um so it was like it the main thing i think the main thing the main highlights is is individuals who are part of peace processes to acknowledge that this is not just a process. These are social contracts that needs to be forged. These are individuals with personalities and interests. Um, and there was many hot waters I got into. And the key thing that I wanted to kind of highlight was this is not my peace process. It's not my sustainable uh, um, conflict solution. It has to be their peace process. It has to be something that they value more than I value. And for me, the, one of the key things that made the whole process successful was to get our international partners and NGOs aligned. We needed to kind of get together and think, okay, we don't want anybody coming in, spoiling what's happening or, or creating animosity or people. It's perception that other individuals are invited to places and creating a deception, right? So um, it was once Interpees and Aston and others who worked on the process were on the same page, we were able to complement each other and to support the locals into what they wanted. And the other key thing that we uh, succeeded was is to make people understand that no matter what happens at the political level, these political leaders or state leaders have their own political interest. It, it was our job to get them to understand that whatever happens in Galkaya will be your problem is like, a very local problem. It's your household, it's your streets, it's your sons and daughters being affected and not necessarily the state leaders. So to think beyond the politics or to think on the realm of living together and accepting each other's coexistence. And I think um, um, go and getting individuals to understand that and breaking that barriers and bringing them together was one thing. The other thing that made the peace agreement uh, happen was to involve more stakeholders is to involve women who have who have been the backbone of Somali's um, um, stability and rebuilding and success in many ways, but get them to understand that there should be no borders. There should be no borders. And I, uh, on this 8th of March, 2017, while there was road blockade and, and, and everything still intact and no movement between people and uh, uh, um, leaders and no exchanges between North and South, we were able to convene um, 100, 200 women to go across the border to make a statement. And I think when I said, oh, I want to get women together, get them to celebrate together, it was seen as like, no way, you're just going to start a civil war. This is not going to happen. Nobody's going to allow it to happen. But it did happen. And the fact that that happened and they crossed over, it broke down a lot of barriers. And highlights like those, it's, what encouraged individuals to get involved. So to get people, more people involved in the decision-making processes and uh, allowing them to know what's happening and how things can be fostered together was a key thing. And most of the problems in some, uh, what um, the conflict and grievances in Somalia is often over resources that are very scarce, some don't exist, and the perception of somebody else having more than what you have. And since you can't achieve it, you kind of want to spoil it. So women played a key role. Getting young people involved 
was another key thing and supporting them into developing their own actions and um, invest in their energy, use them in, in the essence of, of media, promoting coexistence and, and um, positive actions. The other thing that made the agreement work was to hold the media accountable. One thing that was um, evident was media played a huge role in instigating the conflict and um, broadcasting um, some um, information on, from one clan to the other. So media accountability was key. And getting everybody to understand that it's best we get more peace dividends by living together in peace and harmony than to fighting each other. And I, and, and I think... Um, Although I can't take credit for everything that's happened, I was part of a greater team and I was part of a huge institutions where that came with clout and it gave me the power and opened many doors. So it wasn't seen as Ilhan doing this. It was UN officers who had a vested interest. Yes, it became a really a personal uh, drive for me and it, in more than one way to, to prove that putting aside cultural biases and coming with a baggage of, oh, you're a woman and not only a woman, you are a young woman. You know, how are you going to sit in front of elders? How are they going to accept you? How are they going to welcome you? How can you do this? It was just proving the point that it's a mother culture. There is no segregation. And I think women with their own merits are accepted. And I was able to bring individuals who were necessarily not talking to each other at extreme ends together because I was able to leverage uh, um, the fact that I was a Somali woman, a Somali sister who, it, Galkaya was not my city, you know, like technically I'm, I'm, I'm a guest to both sides. I'm uh, in the Somali context, I'm a guest and then my host. And our culture, you don't disrespect your guests. You often are more compliant to your guests, especially if they're women, to kind of listen and give them the benefit of the doubt. So. Our culture itself enables interaction far beyond than what is deemed to be happening right now. And I think it's one of the significant things to highlight by the agreement is it's one of the agreements, um, community-led agreements signed by um, the sub, all the subclans that reside within Muduk, not just Galkayo, it's just Galkayo and beyond within Muduk, who have signed with all their clan leads that include four women. And it was never pushed by UN or anybody else. Um, the elders thought it was appropriate to include women in the process because they were part and party to it. And they realized that this needs to be a wider kind of accommodate, accommodation of peace for it to sustain. So that itself was significant. I, and I was really surprised that day when um, the agreement signed and concluded there was a ceremony. It's only then that I saw there was female names on the left. And I asked, like, oh, how did this happen? Why, why did you guys do this? And they were like, no, no, no. These women have been part of, of, of the reemergence of Galkayo for many years. They've been part of all the conflicts in Galkayo. And they are part of our peacemaking agreements and restoration of our hair system, you know. So we need, we, when things happen organically, then I think it's more accountable to the people who make it and it's theirs and they'll protect it more than if something is foreign to them. So in a nutshell, I think it's important to empower. So there's many people who work in different organizations, including the UN. It's important to have leadership who understands that the complexity of a situation is best suited when the per person representing the organization is empowered to do what he or she thinks 
or deems fit. And I think I had that flexibility and backing by the SRSG and my team. Those are um, a great team who I've been part of, fortunate to work with, Tomoko and Tarif, and they were all providing the adequate support to them themselves got engaged. So it was a, it was a team effort. And I think my um, personal love and 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 and, and uh, thing of being part of Galkayo, the Galkayo solution. And Galkayo is often known as if everybody says if there is a solution to Galkayo and there is a sustainable peace in Galkayo, then the solution to the conflict of the entire nation will be found. So that kind of highlights how significant Galkayo is in the Somali context and to the Somali people. It's referred to as Hudunta Dalka, which means, you know, like literally the umbilical cord of, of Somalia is right in the center. It's a division of all, and it can be the uniting factor of all that exists. And I'll leave it at that. Okay, <clears throat> thank you very much. Um, that was really interesting. Um, next, we have Khalif Al-Rahman, um, who will pick up his points. Okay, hello. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I think I will concentrate on our experience um, during the time. Can you hear me well? Yeah. Uh, during the time of the... Um, uh, visit there well, when we were doing the research. Um, first of all, visiting Galkayo uh, as a research site was, was actually uh, a departure from the norm. Normally, we didn't go there. We thought it was too wild. Uh, people were too quick with, with the guns, and uh, we always avoided that. I think the closest I have been to was Portinle, um, in, in research anyway. Um, so this time we were reassured, at least by Ilham, um, so that we can go and do this research. Uh, departed from reality, from 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 our norm, uh, we we went there, um, and the first thing it, it was still <laughs> not the normal thing we were looking for. In most Somali cities, when you go in you have one airport you're going to. So you just get your ticket, go there, uh, and go to the airport. But in here, you have two airports, South Galkayo, North Galkayo. Uh, I and Ilham didn't know which airport we were going um, until late. We, we thought we were going to South Galkayo uh, because we got guys who was from South Galkayo taking us, but the plane ended in North Galkayo. So we thought we will get someone else, but luckily, because it was peace, we we got the same guys actually coming from south and picking us from there to the airport. Then we have to also carefully select where we were staying. So the uh, the hotel we stayed in North Galkayo, but most of the time we were working actually in North Galkayo. I could see actually the two sides are still separate. The youth go both sides. But people are not everywhere. You, you, if you're North, if you're in North Galkayo, you know the most of people you have seen are from North Galkayo, and if you're in the South, it's also the same. So people are not intermingling yet. Um, so we're not there yet. Um, so that actually showed us the nature of Galkayo, very apparent. Um, people are still. Uh, I mean, this is a place where 
they see as the epicenter of Somali civil war. The fault line between the main two clans, they were fighting most of the time each other. And also a lot of smaller clans, they were also fighting each other. Um, however, people of Galkaya are also proud of the 1993 truce between Abdullah Yusuf and did. Uh, they are proud because they think this was the only one uh, major truce that there was no involvement of international community. The two sides came together. But in reality, this was true truce only. It's, it wasn't a comprehensive agreement. So they had a truce, they decided to leave together to the city, but they have not, there was no resources allocated to keep the peace or also how we're going, how they're going to live together. They, they have decided, and that's why we had um, a lot of problems. But also, the truce actually held to today. I mean, it, it have broken few times, but people were going back to the truce all the time. So it's, 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 it's a fact, something that they can be proud of that had happened so early and have held for so long. Um, then uh, there was that truce, there was a, a fighting in, in 2015, uh, 2019, uh, 2016, and in 2017 you had the agreement again. Now this time the agreement was different at least the way the people on the ground saw it, that the difference was that more people were involved. It wasn't between two warlords, it wasn't between elders, it wasn't between two clans. The two major clans were there, or sub-clans, but there were six, 26 elders altogether from all, a lot of clans in Galkayo, basically all clans from Galkayo. Also included were different sections of society, so youth, uh, women who were all proud of being um, uh, part of this. But then also, there was also allocation of resource in terms of the military, the joint military and also joint uh, 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 police force. That worked on the borders. Because what was happening was that people were able to, work, to, to go and do whatever they, they commit crimes on the other side no one was coming after them. So people realized that dealing with that was important. Uh, and also uh, the market where they shared, they need someone, one side to keep the security. One side could not keep the security, so they needed to come together. So they, they had the military keeping security as the state center where they worked together. And also um, um, the, uh, the, the police force that can cross borders in order to deal with cross-border issues and, and crimes. Now, uh, the international community have also uh, contributed, not only in the terms of Ilham and uh, uh, the creation of the agreement itself, and the pressures, they have done that, but there was also a big dividend. So roads were built, I could see the roads. You could see in these roads, uh, people taking pictures uh, uh, a lot of times. So it was new thing. Uh, a lot of buildings have sprung up around tall buildings and uh, nice cafes and hotels around those roads. Uh, and people in North Galkaria were saying to me that actually this itself guarantees peace. Because before they were dealing, all the people who had money and uh, had to protect it, uh, the, the projects were in Mogadishu already from South Galkaria. So now they have brought their money back to South Galkaria and they have to actually, they have something to shoot back at. Therefore, 
the other side will be careful uh, about this. So that the fact that there was buildings uh, um, uh, that sprung around those roads built by the international community itself is like a peace insurance itself also. Um, for a long time, since 1998, there was a, a system, uh, Puntulan, on one side. On the other side, did not have anything. So there was chaos against the system. Puntulan itself is not that systematic, really. But you have at least a government that can override the elders, uh, can, that can stop the forces. But in here, you didn't have that. So you have a lot of problems. The creation of Galmuduk, actually, even though Puntulan itself opposed, have actually changed a lot, and especially the last election. So what happened in the last election was organizing the society on this side and correct the inequalities that existed between the two sides. So now you have two systems. The elders are still there, but the two systems are much stronger. So there's no plans. Uh, people talk about uh, the peace agreements, uh, the way they want to um, support it. In reality, there's no clear plan from any side. But you at least have two equal systems that are trying uh, uh, to work together. Uh, but in reality, also the two systems are not Galkaya-centric. So they, they sent it somewhere else. So they, they could be also uh, have a problem. Um, the, 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 the creation of Galmuduk actually has strengthened the agreement of 2017 in many ways. Uh, and this is what happened. I mean, people... When, when there was agreement, during the agreement, there was more than 10 people killed. So the elders have to say jointly we'll pay together the uh, deer or the, the compensation for those people. But now they're dealing with the people who were killed after the agreement, clan by clan. So you have uh, springing off from this agreement, a clan agreement that's driven down uh, the society. So for example, each two clans are now making agreement of their own, of the people who died since then, and are trying to underline and, and, and go forward. So uh, the, the business not finished. Uh, started in 2017, it's still continuing, supported by, in a, side, in, in a sense, by the international, agreement, international community, uh, which I think now re the resources are dried up, uh, in a sense, uh, but the states are coming in. Uh, and, 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 and pushing it further. The society seems to be, to be very positive and, uh, and, and think that that was something very good and it needs keeping. Uh, except that when you say how you're going to do this, uh, they don't have much plans. Everyone has his own plan. So they're not working together in a, uh, and, and they're not organized. So um, the trans community helps, but also we have to say also sometimes also actually hinders. Because if you look, there's military there, uh, supported by uh, the Americans, for example, and they're so focused on, on uh, anti-terror, which means if there is an incident that might kill 200 people here, but it's a client warfare, they might not see that's important. When, if they see one person who is suspect, uh, terrorism that they, they will they will move the earth to do that and 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 what, what that, that that makes it a problem when you listen to them sometimes they do things even help 
actually the agreement simply because it helps them in their anti-terror fight. So when you have uh, international community that's actually focused only on one thing, but this piece is actually needs uh, uh, multiple things. Definitely com combating terrorism is one of it, but it's not all of it. So it's important that the international community understands this and, and, and takes it. And they did tell us that sometimes when they help something that was not actually to do with, it helps them in their also uh, anti-terror um, uh, 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 fight. Um, so a cross-section of Galkari society is actually very optimistic about the future of the city and of Muduk region. Um, it's just that when you ask why, uh, they all think it has been good last three years and it ought to be good, better even in the next three years. Uh, but how will that happen? Uh, they still, they also do not know. But I can say definitely that the vast majority of them that we have interviewed are very optimistic about the future of, 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 of Muduk, which they expect it to be one day the capital of Somalia because it's at, at the center and at the center of the uh, uh, clans uh, that are major clans in Somalia. Um, and, and they think its people are entrepreneurs and in politics are very dominant. Therefore, one day this will be so peaceful, the, the capital will move from Mogadishu to them. Uh, let's hope that will become a truth. Uh, but also the reality is, um, by the day I was leaving, uh, four men were killed in front of my hotel. It didn't look that as anything have happened in Calcario. Um, and the four men uh, were all killed as a wrong identity. Someone was trying to have a revenge on clan and uh, fired and uh, they were all the wrong men. So that could actually start little wars as well, which can come into a big war. So you can see the volatility but also the optimism is important, actually. I will leave it there. Finally, we have Mark, who's next. Thank you very much, Matt. Um, and thanks very much to LSE for inviting me to participate in this meeting. Um, I've read the uh, briefing paper and I had some privileged access to the longer report, um, so uh, it's given me some other sort of insights into the um, the Galkayo priest process. I mean, first of all, <clears throat> congratulations to LSE and Nizar and his colleagues for producing this study um, that has, as Nizar noted, been an interest in sort of subnational local peace processes, peace building processes. Um, I'm not sure it's a, a recent turn as you phrased it. I mean, I think the interest in this is, goes back many years, um, sort of, sort of post-1990, end of the Cold War, um, uh, weakening of state sovereignty and globalization. I think all these sort of processes have, that have been going on since then have given um, some you know, greater interest in these sort of sub-national processes. So I, I don't think it's particularly new and I've been part of studies myself in Somalia going back to the early 90s and also in South Sudan actually going back 20 years now I guess um, 
in local peace processes. But I think this is a an important and a useful and also a timely study that adds to the literature and our understanding of um, local uh, peace processes. Um, and it's important because, as you've all said, you know, Galkayo, that part of Somalia has been the sort of epicenter of, of conflict uh, in Somalia for a long time, uh, even going back before the, the Civil War. Um, so, you know, that's why uh, this, this agreement is, is particularly uh, important. <clears throat> I think it's a useful report and a study partly because it builds on previous studies uh, in the descriptions um, of the processes and the, it describes and indicates that some lessons have been learned from past processes as well. And I think I'll say a bit, a bit more about that later. But it's also, I think it's a very timely report um, in part because of the upcoming election process. Um, you know, and a key meeting around the current election processes took place in Dusumareb in Galgudud um, earlier this year. And, um, you know, I guess that was only possible because of the success of the 2017 Galkayo um, agreement, you know, which was largely about creating conditions for the establishment of Galmudug um, as a federal member state and as part of the peace building, uh, a state building process uh, in Somalia. Um, and I think the links between um, the political and conflict dynamics in Mogadishu and those in the central rangelands of Somalia has long been uh, recognised. And indeed, that conflict that led to the intervention that led to the forging of this uh, peace agreement in 2017 was in part sparked by the, as Nizar mentioned, the sort of manoeuvring around the um, election process at, uh, at that time. Um, you know, if that peace process had failed in uh, in Galmudug, maybe Galmudug, um, we may not have the, that sort of stability today that has allowed the the, the Dusumred conference to, to happen. So it's a reminder of what also the sort of long term impacts of of some of these peace agreements uh, can be as well. Um, um, <clears throat> I guess the real congratulations though should go to those who were really instrumental in forging. Uh, the peace agreement in Galkayo. Of course, Ilham, as we know, was very key in that as a chief negotiator. Um, um, the SRSG Keating's office clearly played an important role, um, as is described in the report, and also Interpeace, as has been mentioned. And um, really, I think they should, it's a shame they're not on this call, because I think they would have a lot to, to contribute. Uh, more than myself. I mean, I did not, didn't follow this process itself at the time, so perhaps I can take a bit of a step back from it um, as an observer of other peace processes in um, Somalia and Somaliland, um, and in particular, maybe reflect on a on a on a piece of work that I did with Interpeace. Um, which was mentioned, um, which was this peace mapping study in um, 2007. And the idea behind that study at the time was to try and shift thinking in international responses to Somalia away from the sort of focus on international mediated um, national peace talks, which had had at the very least a sort of challenging history 
to an interest in local uh, peace processes, which had at that point, I think, proven more durable, you know, in Somaliland and in Puntland um, than the, the international uh, um, mediated processes. And also a shift of thinking away from just doing um, conflict analysis to uh, doing peace analysis, uh, as it were, trying to understand these local processes. So, you know, the premise of that study um, was that, you know, conflict assessments had become a very sort of common practice among um, aid organizations, other organizations working in, in, in countries in conflict in order to understand those drivers uh, and dynamics of, of, of armed violence. And it was less, much less common to see assessments about how societies also adapt to conflict, how people manage their security, how they try and reconstruct um, viable ways of life. And I think, uh, you know, the understanding of those conditions and processes and also some of the costs by which people, you know, would try to reduce conflict, uh, I think was, um, we felt um, was equally important and also potentially a starting point for, uh, for uh, diplomatic interventions and also for you know, foreign aid policies. So that, that peace mapping study that we did with Interpeace set out to study those local processes and also to contrast them with the international mediation. And so, you know, some of our key questions are about why the international diplomatic initiatives had seemed to have been unable to help establish a functional government uh, and why some of these local peace processes in the Somali regions have proven to be um, more sustainable than the international ones. And the study, um, in the study, uh, Interpeace uh, colleagues, they researched well over a hundred um, local uh, peace processes. I mean, I think there were 90 processes alone that they looked at in Jubaland. And there were another sort of 30 processes in Somaliland that they researched. and you know, similar numbers in Puntland and elsewhere, some of which, you know, succeeded, had positive outcomes, and some of which were less. Um, and it also looked at international mediation efforts between uh, 1991 and um, 2004, um, and, uh, you know, drew up a, a set of findings. And I, and, and I went back and looked at those, um, having read your uh, briefing paper and, and your report, and, and I thought it was interesting to reflect on them um, and what some of the findings of that report were. So, you know, obviously one of the main findings of Somalis were really adept at, um, um, at um, or as, as adept and as engaged in making peace as they were in, in, in fighting each other. Um, and <clears throat> one of the other things that kept coming across was the importance of um, called Somali ownership, which I think is a bit of a sort of overused word. Um, but um, I think what we broke that down to mean when we were looking at these local peace processes is that they were, you know, locally designed, they were locally mediated, they were locally managed, and they were largely locally financed as well. Um, they included um, representation that was considered um, legitimate, there were locally selected uh, um, representatives in those meetings. They had long timeframes and were um, flexible. Uh, some of them ran over months, 
Um, they all took place within the Somali regions. Um, they drew on traditional mechanisms for consensus building and conflict resolution, like the hair that um, we have at uh, uh, Ilhan talked about in, in the Galkayo process. Um, there were systems for reparation, which were really important for sustaining those agreements. They, they had systems for sanctions against spoilers, those who broke those agreements. Um, they were, there were great efforts to make them um, very inclusive, involving broad uh, public participation. Um, there were great efforts to disseminate those proceedings and, and the outcomes of those meetings to ensure that there was some kind of popular uh, endorsement of, of, of those agreements. And they also established transitional mechanisms to oversee the implementation um, of, uh, of, of those agreements. And of course, there were, you know, the, in, in, many, in many ways, the, the sort of objectives of those agreements were about uh, rebuilding um, social uh, relations. So quite different in terms of the, the objectives, perhaps, of the international uh, mediated efforts, which were about trying to um, help uh, mediate or, or forge a, a deal, uh, a power sharing deal between between uh, different parties, rather than trying to uh, transform the, um, the the conflict itself. And so those those characteristics of those. Um, locally owned, those local Somali uh, peace processes uh, contrasted uh, quite starkly with the international ones. Um, I won't, you know, I won't go into the, the details of those, but um, one of the interesting, for me, one of the interesting aspects of the briefing paper and, and, and the report was not so much the international external mediation um, although clearly uh, important, but was that how many of these principles that were apparent in these local Somali peace processes were also there in the in the case of uh, Galkayo? And I guess it suggested a couple of things to me. Um, one, as the, the CRP report also notes, that less, some, some lessons have been learned, um, that the experience and knowledge that Interpeace and others brought to the process was... was um, was very important. I mean, partly based on the, on the peace mapping study, I guess, but also their their long history and their deep knowledge of of what can work uh, uh, in Somali was clearly uh, important. And also, it seemed to me that the international actors had also learned uh, something. Um, one of the the questions I think that was left hanging for us in the peace mapping study was was about this. Um, a question about how do you bring the local, as it were, and the national and the international together, and I think that comes out uh, strongly in the uh, the, the Galkayo process because um, it seems to have worked. Um, and of course, in addition to the particular individuals that were involved, which the report report um, stresses, there were there were clearly common interests between the international community. Uh, and the sort of state building, the federalization process, and uh, the interests of, of those um, actors uh, on the ground. Um, and there was a recognition of that relationship between um, the local dynamics in 
um, Galkayo um, and uh, and those in, in Mogadishu. So that link, linking the local and the national, I think, was very, um, uh, understanding that was, was very key. Um, and, you know, I think it will be very interesting, uh, as I said, uh, because this is a timely report, to um, see how the, the current uh, election process uh, plays out uh, in, in Galkayo and what kinds of um, strains uh, it may place on that, um, uh, the Galkayo uh, peace agreement. Um, I mean, Holly uh, referred to a few uh, issues around that, that there doesn't seem to be the sort of active um, efforts to maintain or sustain uh, that agreement uh, in Galkayo uh, at the moment. And uh, I, would, I would think that for that is something that um, Somalis uh, and the international um, community should um, you know, keep, keep an eye on. Um, I think maybe um, I will leave it at that, but maybe just one, one other thing just to add, and that relates to something that, that um, Khalif said, is that um, you know, the process, in a sense, is not over yet. Um, there is an ongoing um, process, and I think it's the um, political settlement research program came up with a with a, a, a term unsettlement rather than political settlement, and a lot of these processes are, are in a state of unsettlement as they're not necessarily uh, final. And so I think um, you know, whether they ever can be final is is a question in itself. But I, I think um, if there is a Another lesson to to draw from the past is that it's um, the international community tends to be a little bit fickle uh, in these uh, contexts. Is that they're very interested in it at some point, and then interests move on elsewhere. So how I guess the question is how does one sustain the you know the the, the efforts and the uh, and the, the achievements that were made in uh, 2017 um, through the Galkayo peace process uh, going forward. I'll leave it to that. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much to all of our presenters. Um, I have um, just wanted to say that it's been fantastic um, to hear everything. And we'll now open up the floor to questions from the audience. Now, I've already been fielding several questions that have come through. And so perhaps um, I'll go ahead and throw some of them out. Um, but if people continue to um, address them, we will, I'll continue to try and um, filter them out to everyone. So there are a few foundational questions which emerged, um, which I'll start with those first, and then we'll move to kind of questions around resources and the role they play and other kind of conflict drivers which have emerged um, or, or maybe spoilers or, or leading to sort of uh, political unsettlement and things. So Christine Seifert um, has asked, how do you measure the success of the agreement? And could you elaborate a bit more on the activist approach to, to peace building? Um, so that was, I think I'll field a few just now on foundation. So another one that emerged was um, from Abdifata Duhulu, um, Duhulu Lao. Um, so though the solution of Somalia lies within the Somalis, can the panels define what it is peace before we think of a solution? So I think um, conceptualizing peace, is there a conceptualization of peace that people have? Um, and 
I'll leave that. Well, there's, I suppose, um, Ismail Jumali has asked another question which sort of relates to this too, and sort of saying, what kind of mediators do Somali peace processes need? External impartial mediators or internal partial mediators? So I think those are the kind of foundational questions, and I'll leave that at the, that for now to throw out to everyone, and then we'll return to some of the questions around resources. Um, does anyone want to, I don't think it, whoever wants to dive in first is perhaps the way to go. Shall I have a first go? Please do. Yep. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. We've, I think we've, we've had comments from Mark and myself on it. What do we mean by, you know, what conceptualizing peace and what do we mean by peace? And I think, um, I mean, as well as a, a kind of absence or a relative absence of violence, particularly compared to the past, one of the most important things about this agreement and in the some of the literature that Mark uh, spoke about, Khalif talked about this, Ilham talked about this, is the rebuilding of social relations. And I think that perhaps is is really critical and marked a difference between, as we said, between the 93 Accord and this process, which is still ongoing. So I guess the re, the rebuilding of social relations um, across the, a border area is highly significant. And you would hope that the fact that the, the peace process is still evolving, and as Khalif pointed out, there are incidents, uh, maybe these are more kind of criminal inc incidents, it's still holding, it's being sustained, and a large part of that um, sustainability is the fact that it was a very inclusive process and it involved the rebuilding of social re relations. So I don't know whether others would like to uh, comment on that aspect. What is success? So I will have a go at answering Christine. Um, is, is the peace agreement successful? I think it's very hard to measure. I think that we're still in the state of making peace and peace process is still ongoing. Measuring success is far too early. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But so far, the fact that people's connections and connectivity have been restored that can be seen as a success. However, what, what's needed is not just peace building or mediation, what's needed is systems and governance in place and structures of government and extension of state authority that goes beyond the state capitals. And once those are restored, I think then we can see and measure how, how successful the peace agreement has become and how can it be elaborated a bit more. So if that answers your question. Okay, there was another one that I think came in just as I asked that, which is from Mizuki Takahashi, who's asked, what do you think when, when basically is the end point of a peace agreement and peace building in this Galkayo peace process? So I think we're just going to start with some very difficult questions in the beginning, and then we'll break it down to some of the more questions around resources as they come. So I'll just throw that out there because it does relate to that, if, if anyone wants to be bold enough to talk about that. Maybe we can I just point uh, the the finger at Khalif actually because he's been following and there there have been more subsequent uh, interclan uh, peace agreements that have been developing since that 2017 one. So Khalif, maybe you want to indicate or say a few words about how there's a succession of uh, agreements taking place. Um. 
Yeah, it's refinement of agreement, actually. But in reality, if you look at this, um, it's not a conflict between two states. It's not a conflict between larger populations. It's the absence of a state itself. And it is apparatus, security apparatus, it's justice, policing, everything being absent is creating actually this conflict itself. And I believe unless we have effective state, we are going to have this conflict and we're going to be talking about uh, conflict resolution. Uh, because if you look at it, most of the, of the um, uh, conflict starts from a, a simple crime. Someone kills someone, someone stole uh, the, the cows of someone. These are things that normally are dealt with the police, but the police is not there. So the clan then comes in, the other clan comes in then. So I think the end game have to be a state that's functional. That's it for me. Uh, maybe I could just add uh, on the to the the um, question about um, how do you define peace, which maybe also relates to the question about success of, of the agreement um, or, or of, a, of a peace agreement. Um, I mean, these are. Um, talked about uh, the importance of sort of rebuilding social relations and that I think is was very central to a lot of Somali run um, peace uh, processes that I've studied uh, in the past but I guess it raises quite an interesting question because about political settlements because we talk about Somali there being a sort of political settlement in Somalia at the moment based on a particular set of variables including the sort of 4.5 formula and um, elections and constitutions and things but where in that political settlement is there uh, any sense of rebuilding social relations um, and so is that only something that happens at a at a local level or is it also something that can happen at a national level in, uh, as part of that um, sort of national uh, political settlement I mean as I mentioned you know, sort of different definitions of, of, of peace, like the sort of absence of violence. I mean, I think other issues around equity, uh, you know, one, one could look at, and I think the report talks about how there's been a, a sort of rebalancing of, of that in Galkayo between the North and the South as different resources have, have come in at different times. Um, and um, I think the other thing about, you know, is, is there question it might raise is is there ever peace anyway because i think the dynamics of you know are, are always changing the the war in the in the 1990s in somalia you know and the kind of conflicts that were happening then is a very i think is a very different to the the kind of conflicts that are happening now in somalia so you know would you apply the same descriptions of states of conflict and peace in the early 90s and states of conflict and peace in, in, in the 2000s? That doesn't answer the question, it just raises more. <laughs> I can, I'd like to also just come in on the, uh, on the point of uh, the question about what's, what do we mean by an activist approach, actually, because I think this is really also central to some of the work that actually we do within the CRP, but that brings up a bit of a tension between an activist approach, which you would you would typically say it's about a, a very a project or an initiative that is very personalised. It becomes a very personal project, and there's a tension with with institutional 
positions and the institutions come with their security protocols they come with their bureaucratic procedures and one of the striking things in doing this piece of work talking to very to a lot of different people is and i can think of three different organizations where you have to break the rules you have to break different types of rules organizational rules in order to really in order to, because you're so invested, personally invested in a project, it's not just a job. It's part of uh, a deep commitment that people feel. And I think that that is a difficult thing to overcome. But some of the people that were involved in this peace process did comment on the constraints. I think Ilham referred to it herself, um, that there are... Um, there are these different constraints which bureaucracies and organizations bring that are not always conducive to demonstrating to local people that you are invested locally that you who and, and where local people are living that conflict and are facing those dangers and if you're just acting within the kind of limited constraint what can be very limited constraints of your organization this becomes problematic and this is not just this wouldn't necessarily just apply to the area of peace building but you could apply it to lots of different ways in which international organizations ngos un are engaged in places like somalia they often become very separate from the local context and from building relations with local people so i think it's a i think it's a really really important issue and i think it's a really it's a really difficult one to to uh, resolve actually the uh, the limits of organizations and institutions with the possibilities of what you can do acting as an individual outside of those or beyond those constraints i don't know what yeah maybe that's i don't know if anyone else wants to comment on that no one else wants to comment we've got some more difficult questions so get ready um so i think um there's the other kind of round of questions loosely center on what the conflict drivers are and i'll divide these into two parts but um the first batch of them one of which goes um i think is from abdi fatih Duholo again, or, or and it's requesting if the international community is, is, is understood to be spoilers, as the first panel speaker illustrated. When the panel members, when is it possible that um, outside solutions will ever create viable solutions to Somalia's problems? If I can summarize that question, so is external intervention ever going to meaningfully resolve Somalia's challenges? Um, there's another question from Chris Langdon, which is directed towards Ilhan, which asks, which, which says that um, Ilhan referred to the negative role of the media. How was that addressed? Are there examples of the media playing a positive role? And then I have a sort of two-part question, which I'm going to combine from two questioners. The first is from Ahmed Shire, asking, communities in Madug are mobilizing resources, millions of dollars, and they're competing to build port infrastructure in Gurkhad and Hobyo, Indian Oceans. Will such projects contribute to the peace or cause another layer of conflict in Gokayo and the larger Madug region? And then there's another question, which I think also relates um, interestingly to kind of infrastructure, although this time in relation to buildings and hotels, um, from Subhan Jama, who says um, that they found Caliph's observations about the buildings and hotels springing up across Gokayo 
as a sort of peace assurance of sorts. sorts. Although Subban has just returned from Gokayo and was particularly encouraged to see young people from each side traveling back and forth across the border to visit these new establishments and argues that this is perhaps a positive observation about how local investment can operate as a boon to local peace. So I think there's a question about resources there and um, I'll leave it at that. There's some more that will that'll be raised as well. So I'll go straight in and answer uh, the media related question. So media played an extra on the way, the way we kind of compacted was to identify what was happening. So the first precaution that we took was we invited all the media um, outlets, uh, uh, providers, and I think it was TIS Plus who were kind enough to do the training. So there's media training offered to them. And after the media training, uh, we they were made to kind of forbids them from reporting or instigating, not reporting, but basically forbid them from um, uh, instigating um, um, violence or inciting violence or promoting conflict within the clans. And the two state leaders um, agreed that any media outlet which kind of instigates or, or promotes violence will lose their license. Um, some, some, some refer to us as saying that's like against media rules and media laws, but it wasn't. It was just prevention of conflict and prevention of, of losses of lives. So that's one of the measures that we have taken. And they actually, after the training and, and putting uh, media outlets in one room to kind of communicate, because if you think about it, Gakaya was not only divided by the people, there were separate media outlets operating north and south are not necessarily sharing information and communicating so it's a competition of who um, releases uh, um, defaming words and, and, and allegations to the other so like um, that kind of compacted um, and put across um, uh, the vision of the people which was to promote peace rather than to promote conflict the other question um, from in terms of regarding resources uh, Hobby of Port and Gadaad Port. I think that's a positive uh, investment. Uh, what's happening and what Somalis are known to be very entrepreneurial, you know. The relative peace Galkai has had for the past three years has attracted many uh, retainees to come and invest and develop and build houses. It's uh, one big, massive construction site. It's a lot of things happening uh, and it's encouragement to see that relative peace can. Uh, create space for, for, for investment um, from actually the diaspora locals. And there is intersection between the two. So although there is still a relative divide, there is interaction. So you're able to go north to south and explore different hotels in different areas. Youth are going beyond the city and then going to the rural areas on, on Fridays and, and, and getting together. So there's a high economic development is key. And um, economic interaction is also a very uh, important thing. I just wanted to highlight that the, the division not only created um, segregation amongst people, there was also segregated kind of in terms of economical terms. There is different police in different structures, everything everything that exists in Galkayo is, is, exists in two. We have two mayors, two governors, two of everything, and it's one small city. So now what the agreement has enabled was um, a working relationship between the two offices, although there are two separate administrations. There is an element of, of 
sharing information and working together uh, and sharing resources at times of difficulties. And when there is uh, there was a fire in the South Gakayo, the, the fire brigades came from North Gakayo. So that never used to happen. It was, you know, this is one of those encouraging things. And it's actually encouraging and, and making people have the hopes and dreams of creating Gakayo as one unified city that comes directly under the federal. I mean, that's a conversation that we're not yet to have. And Somalia is not ready for yet, but it's one of those things that when you speak to the locals, that comes out. Do others want to dive in, or we do have a few more questions, although we may be running out of time. Um, I, maybe I could just. I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Uh, well, no, just a couple of thoughts on on the question about whether the international community can ever meaningfully resolve conflict. I mean, I think it you know, depends what we, again, what we mean by uh, resolve a, a conflict. Uh, and it seems that in the case of the Galkaya Agreement, the international community played um, uh, a useful and important role, but it really depends what you know, you're trying to resolve. Um, <clears throat> I mean, one of the things I think that my, my reading of the, of the study is that you know, the conflicts that we were sort of dealing with there in Galkaya around issues of sort of governance and, and, and resources. But, you know, as a, as a region of Somalia, there are many other issues there, um, you know, land, uh, environmental change, urbanization, lots of other dynamics that are happening there that can also feed into um, conflict, um, process changes in livelihood patterns, uh, I mean, new infrastructure and things. All of this have potent, the potential to, uh, you know, to both, I guess, stabilize the place, but also um, uh, provoke provoke conflict. So I think it depends what what it is that one's uh, trying to um, trying to resolve. I think um, if one thinks back to uh, Puntland and Somaliland, I think what was very important in the processes there was actually having that uh, political agreement, um, and 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 which brought a certain level of um, stability and a reduction in armed violence. That then I think allowed other um, economic processes and social processes to happen. So I think if you know if the international community has helped in Galkayo to um, bring around that uh, bring about that political agreement then to some extent yes they i would say they have helped to resolve that conflict it doesn't mean that it's going to stay like that forever or that other issues are not pertinent but um if one looks at the, the importance of that sort of political settlement uh, then it seems that they contributed there And just to add, like the role the international partners played within the Galkaya process was a facilitation role. You know, they, they were able to kind of bring individuals together and facilitate rather than the lead. And you're right, Mark, the political agreement is what cracked open all these kind of avenues and gave us opportunities to kind of push through and see what can be achieved by the locals by giving them the power and tools to kind of take the process on. I just wanted to answer uh, Adam Matan's question of, are there any plans to institutionalize these agreements to ensure sustainability? Um, the, the agreements were um, done in conjunction with the Minister of Interior, uh, Federal Minister of Interior. 
and everything has been documented uh, by the uh, uh, the committee. I mean, like the, the agreement is held by elders. The elders have uh, consist of thirty six, and within thirty six, there's an executive branch. There's there's always been a formal documenting and expanding the agreement. So right now, there's other processes going on that's building on what was achieved uh, amongst the Muduk elders and going towards the east and the western side of Muduk. So it's an elaboration of, of, of it's a starting point, and it's a starting point to get the culture of writing things down, institutionalizing it. Maybe the Ministry of Interior is documenting. Um, but one of the key individuals who played a leading role um, is the current Minister of Interior, Pullan. He was one of the key stakeholders at the time. He wasn't a minister. This is Mohammed Devanad. He played a key role in, in, in facilitating going beyond his um, civil duties to kind of help bring the two sides together to kind of forge an agreement and to document and dictate what was going to be written by the elders. So a lot of individuals with their own capacities played a role to make sure that they, the peace was owned by them. And I'll leave it at that. Hopefully it answers Adam's question. Okay. Um, I think we, there are still a few more questions um, which are very big, um, but I think we may have to wrap it up here just because we are literally right on the edge of, of everything. So I just want to thank everyone very much for coming. Um, it's been a really fascinating discussion and I think there's going to be a lot more. Um, and so basically I just want to thank all of our participants um, for making the time um, and also everyone who's been able to attend this virtually either on Zoom or on Facebook. Thank you very much. And we look forward to hosting you um, sometime soon. So we'll give sort of a, a virtual round of applause um, to everyone. Um, thank you very much. <laughs>